Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me is a man that celebrated Thanksgiving down in the Turks and Caicos with Brad Pitt and his other celebrity friends, the captain. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. All right, Captain, this week we are drinking Conspiracy Theory by Southern Star Brewing Company down in the great state of Texas. Garage grade, four out of five bottle caps. Grab a can of this wonderfully hoppy but big on drinkability true West Coast style IPA today. Ours was provided to us by Kristen in Seattle, Washington. We also have Carol in Phillipsburg, Kansas, who says, you guys rock, and she's been taking advantage of some of our sponsors' special offers with our promo code, saving a small fortune. Yeah, promo code GARAGE. GARAGE, how about that? Next, we have the Fredericksburg Zombie Walk. Now, I must apologize. What? I'm assuming this is a hol- Halloween time thing, but from what I do know is Fredericksburg Zombie Walk is an annual event, and in 2015, they collected about 3,000 pounds of food to donate to the needy. So if you live in the Virginia area and you're looking for a really good cause to get involved with. And something fun to do as well. Yeah, just type in the Fredericksburg zombie walk into the old Google machine and see how you can get involved. Next, we have Kenny in Pensacola, Florida. We also have Lauren in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And last but not least, Joanne in Mason, Ohio. It's Joanne's 50th birthday on December 3rd. So a big garage happy birthday to Joanne from Nick the captain, your sister Kathy, and all of your friends at the RAV4. And like always, we like your jib. We want to thank everybody who pitched in for this week's beer fund, and if you want to buy us around for next week's show, go to truecrimegarage.com and click on the donate button. And the t-shirts, if anybody that bought a t-shirt, they have been shipped now, so you'll get those very soon. Please share, you know, once you get the t-shirt. 
take a take a picture take a selfie send it to us well i gave the shirts to the pony express a couple days ago so they are arriving by horseback any Uh day now enjoy and that's enough of the business that's right gather around grab a chair grab a beer and let's talk some true crime this is true crime garage this is the case of Mary Pinchot Meyer. Washington, October 13th. Mrs. Mary Pinchot Meyer, a Washington artist and society woman, was shot and killed yesterday. The police arrested Raymond Crump Jr., a 25-year-old laborer, and charged him with murder. Mrs. Meyer, 43 years old, was shot twice in the left temple and in the chest as she walked alone on the old Chesapeake and Ohio Canal towpath in Georgetown. She died at about 12.45 p.m. The towpath, a pedestrian and bicycling route frequented by children and fishermen, parallels the Potomac River. Mrs. Meyer had sometimes taken a walk there with Mrs. John F. Kennedy, Mrs. Meyer's friends said. Mrs. Kennedy, who now lives in New York, was described as a good friend of Mrs. Meyer. Mrs. Meyer's brother-in-law, Benjamin C. Bradley, identified the body. He is the Washington Bureau Chief of Newsweek magazine. Mrs. Meyer was Mrs. Bradley's sister. Mr. Bradley was a close friend of President Kennedy. The victim was divorced wife of Cord Meyer Jr., a writer and founder of the United World Federalists, now employed here by the Central Intelligence Agency. The driver of an automobile tow truck along Canal Road, which runs parallel to the towpath, enabled the Metropolitan Police to make a quick arrest of the suspect. He was arraigned late yesterday before a United States commissioner and held without bail on a charge of murder. He denied any knowledge of the crime. The tow truck operator, Henry Wiggins, 24, told the police he had seen a woman, apparently Mrs. Meyer, struggling with a man. He heard screams and two shots and then saw a man bending over the body. He drove quickly a half mile to the nearest telephone. The suspect was apprehended an hour later, wet beside the Potomac near the shooting scene. He told the police he had fallen in the river while trying to retrieve his fishing pole. The police reported finding a fishing rod at his home. Mrs. Crump also identified a white jacket found near the scene as her husband's. The witness said the assailant was wearing a white jacket. Divers were searching the canal and river bottom for the murder weapon. The Myers were divorced five years ago following the death of their son in an automobile accident, acquaintances said. This is True Crime Garage. And this is the case of Mary Pinchot Meyer. Well, here we are, Captain. We're doing part two of the Mary Pinchot Meyer 
murder case. And why mm. are we covering this? Because obviously we cover true crime here in the garage. Oh, really? Yeah. And last week we started to cover this case because it was um, the anniversary of the assassination of JFK, our 35th president. Yes. And, you know, this time of year you're seeing everything on TV involving the assassination. And this case has always been tied to that particular case. Yeah, because Mary Meyer and John F. Kennedy had a love affair of some kind. Yeah, they had an, in, an intimate relationship. Uh, she had frequented the White House often. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and they were former neighbors as well. Correct. So it, when one looks at the assassination of JFK, one should look at this case as well. And that's what we're doing here. Now, what was read in the trailer, that is the actual article, the newspaper article that came out the day after Mary Meyer was shot mm-hmm. uh, in October of 1964. So that kind of brings you up to speed as far as what took place that day and what the general public's perception was of what took place that day. And where we're at now is we have Ray Crump Jr. He's 25 years old. He's yeah. been apprehended. He was caught at the scene. Mm-hmm. So some would argue he's caught red-handed uh, with his fly down. Um, but anyway, he's arrested and he's arraigned awfully quickly later that same day. And now we have a trial to contend with. Right. Right. We have to figure out, is Ray Crump Jr. guilty of the death of Mary Pinchot Meyer? Now, some things that take place very quickly after he's arrested. We have an attorney comes forward. Ray Crump Jr. is not of the means to be able to afford a strong defense attorney. Right. However, a up-and-coming and somewhat successful defense attorney, Dovey Roundtree, she agrees to represent Ray Crump Jr. for the cost of $1. And, and one could assume, right, that maybe that because it's such a high-profile case, uh, you know, an ex-wife of a CIA agent that and, and you know, connections to John F. Kennedy – that maybe this would boost her profile, maybe? Mm-hmm. Well, that's exactly what she was doing. She was going to stake her whole reputation and her future career on this case itself and how she represents Ray Crump Jr. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing, too, is we have a, a bit of a uh, civil rights or a racist or whatever. How I don't know what the right word is here, but we have a, a bit of... of of a typical conflict. Well, let's just be clear and let's be blunt, right? So this is 1964 and it's a white woman and the accused is a black male. So um, I believe this lawyer, you know, not only to boost her profile, but also who is going to defend this man adequately against this, against technically a white system at that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She probably stepped forward hoping to, Make sure that Ray Crump Jr. received a fair trial. Mm-hmm. This is not just a white woman. This is a society woman. And this is a, a kind of a, a low guy on the totem pole, Ray Crump Jr., a young laborer who has no money. And let's see what kind of trial he's going to get. Right. Well, she quickly interviews Ray Crump Jr. And after meeting with him after you know several times, she decides that she believes that he's innocent. And she says in her biography that came out many years later that she would not represent Ray Crump Jr. unless she believed he was innocent. Mm-hmm. Her her reasoning for this is that when she met with him, she saw what she considered to be a, a small kind of meek man that was very confused about a situation 
this situation. Right, right. He didn't well, even really understand what had happened or why he was arrested for what had happened. Yeah, so his story, I mean, simply at the scene of the crime was that he's fishing and a pole goes in the water and he goes after it and he falls into the water himself and then he's arrested. Mm-hmm. Um, no involvement, no connection to Mary Meyer herself. Right. They didn't know one another. And so she steps forward to represent him. And she, again, she says that he's terrified because this is in Washington, D.C. If you commit first degree murder, Mm -hmm. it's a it's punishable by death. Yeah. What's interesting here to me is you see this in the O.J. trial as well is like uh, Johnny Cochran, for example, didn't want to be a part of the team until he actually spoke to O.J. Mm -hmm. He had to believe OJ or he didn't want to take the case and she's doing the same thing. Correct. Yeah. She did the exact same thing and it's going to be a a white judge, a white prosecutor. um, And this is not looking to favor Ray Crump jr. Now, one thing that happens in the get go uh, from the early part of this in February of 1965 um, Ray Crump Jr. is told that he is going to submit a hair sample to right. the prosecution. Okay. And he refuses to do so. Now, this is when... Wait, hold on. So you just said that he was going to. He, he was no, going... he was told he was going okay, to. Okay, okay. He was told he was going to. He refuses to do so. He, he's brought mm-hmm. into the police captain's office in February of 1965. He refuses this hair sample. Okay. Uh, what happens is I don't know the legality of this whole situation, but it sounds a little messed up to me because reportedly they held him down and took his hair from him. Mm. Uh, thus they ended up with a sample of his hair. Now this happened unbeknownst to Mrs. Roundtree who was representing him. And she was quite angered by this and she would try to get this removed from the actual trial. Now they are not able to do so. His hair is going to be a part of this trial. And it's going to be looked at as evidence in this murder case. Now, this case would go to trial in the late summer of 1965. Uh Now, one of the first witnesses that would be called would be Coroner Dr. Rayford. And what I how I want to do this, Captain, if you would play along with me, is I'd like to go along through some of this trial. and We'll kind of talk about things as we go through it. Um, But the thing to me here is, you know how some trials are just downright boring and it's just kind of you know, dry and a couple of different people presenting the facts. And it's, it's a real quick to uh, decide whether this person's guilty or innocent. And there's not much news out of it. Right. This trial to me, I would have loved to have been sitting in the courtroom because this seemed like a trial that had a little bit of drama to it. And it kind of played out like an episode of Matlock, in my opinion, where you get to see it, see everything in action and you get to see two attorneys actually working against each other. Like they're playing a game of chess. Right. So the first Witness that is called by the prosecution. This is coroner Dr. Rayford. Now he, the, the, I'll break down his testimony for you. We don't have to go through the whole thing. Yeah. But he's basically saying that Mary Pinchot Meyer was killed by two gunshots. This was a 38 caliber gun. Okay. Uh, two shots, one to the temple that left a slight halo around the entrance wound and one to the right shoulder blade. This again left a slight halo did you say the right temple? Yeah. Okay. So the so, right temple, right shoulder blade. Okay. So the the bullet that entered through her shoulder blade 
it peripherated the lung and it severed the aorta. So basically, once that happened, she died almost instantly after the second bullet was fired. Okay. Now, he's pressed a little bit because they want to figure out what does this halo that's near the entrance wound mean? And the coroner would tell you that that halo is produced by powder burns, meaning that the shot was very close in distance, if not point blank, on Mary's body. Right. Mary had abrasions on her head, knee, and ankle. Now, this this would su- suggest that Mary fought her attacker and fought pretty hard. They were able to determine that she was drugged about 25 feet. This is after she clung to a tree. Now, one of the bits of evidence that the prosecution would say that they're going to show to the jury is that they found blood stains on one of the trees. Well, okay. this would be the tree that she, she clung to. So she was attacked. She was shot once. She clung to a tree. She's drugged 25 feet, shot again, dies instant, instantly. That's right. how the coroner sees this attack going down. And just to remember that, that this happened during the day. This happened like basically a lunch break. Yeah, at twelve, approximately 12.20 p.m. Okay. In the very early afternoon. So uh, the other thing that the coroner is able to decipher here is that the assailant was able to overpower the victim. The victim, Mary, she was five foot six inches tall. Okay. And she weighed about 127 pounds. The coroner would also suggest that the whoever fired the gun could be ambidextrous that he could be able to have the ability to use both the right and left hand with the same amount of skill right and that he was probably skilled with a handgun yeah and you would assume that if the shots are coming from the, the right side of Mary that the the suspect would be left-handed or that he attacked her from behind and he was right yeah yeah true well true I mean if you're if you're behind the victim and you're right-handed, then you can shoot the right temple. But is the wound coming from the front of Mary or from the back of Mary? The the shot that went through her shoulder blade? Yeah. That would have been in the back. Okay, so it would be more likely that the victim or the suspect would be right-handed. Yep. Because then they shoot. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so the the next witness called for the prosecution. This is supposed to be one of the star witnesses for the prosecution. There was going to be two of them. And the first one was Henry Wiggins. Now, you'll remember from what we said in the first episode, this is the tow truck driver. Yeah, 24. Yeah, and so he testifies that he was sent by Joe Cameron, this is his boss, to pick up Bill Branch, that's his partner, and respond to a stalled vehicle at about 12.20 p.m. And the two arrived, arrived at the vehicle at that time. When the two arrived, they saw the vehicle. This is a Rambler, okay? Uh, And Wiggins immediately heard screams right after they arrived. So this is within seconds. We're able to put together an easy timeline on her attack because Mm -hmm. he's saying within seconds of arriving at 12.20 p.m., he hears screaming. And this alerts him, and he decides to run across the street. Before he could get to the wall is when he hears the first shot. This is coming from the canal area. So he proceeds. Then a few seconds later, he says a few seconds later, he hears another shot. Now his partner, Bill Branch, would later testify that it was more like 10 seconds or 15 seconds between shots. Uh Wiggins sees the man. He sees a man just seconds after he hears the second shot. He says he's in clear sight of the man and he's less than 130 feet away. Wiggins ducks down. 
So a little more than a football field. Exactly. Because, he, you know, he's he's hearing these shots. He's trying Wait, to no, react to what's feet, going on. feet, not yards. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay, yeah I'm, less than 130 feet. Yeah. He ducks down behind the wall. He's reacting. And then he gets back up again and he looks and he sees a man put something in his jacket pocket. This item was in the man's right hand. He could not say for certain if this item was a gun or not. He basically, after being cross-examined, says that he described the item, item as a dark hand object, mm-hmm. something he was holding with his hand. The man turns around and walks away. But this would go with our idea that he's right-handed. You're exactly okay. right. So He walks away down and over the hill. Uh, the man was wearing a cap. This is one of those caps where you can button the brim to the to the to the. Yeah, hat. I call it like a cab driver hat. He was wearing dark pants, dark shoes, and a light or tan jacket. Uh, and he would state that the jacket was zipped up. Now, so he says light or tan. Yeah. Okay. And he saw the man standing over the body for approximately a minute, uh, and says he did not go get a good look at the man's face. Wiggins later that day would identify Ray Crump Jr. as this man. Mm-hmm. And he would identify Crump's clothing that was submitted to the court as the clothing that he had seen the man standing over the body as wearing. But that was a white jacket. Correct. Right. I mean, he says, he says light or tan jacket. Right. But there's a big difference between white and tan. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it could be a light tan jacket. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. Bill Branch. Now, remember, he's Henry Wiggins, the other tow truck truck driver. That's his partner. He would testify that he he was over by the wall. He didn't see the man. But after Wiggins had left to retrieve the police officers, that he had stood by the wall and kind of watched over the scene. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a problem with this testimony, okay? Because at the crime scene... (laughs) <laughs> when he's interviewed by the police, he says when he heard the shot, he was afraid. He he was working on the Nash Rambler that was stalled. Mm-hmm. And when he heard the shot, he decided to get in the vehicle and just kind of hide and hunker down inside the vehicle. Yeah, fight or flight. And he, he took off on a flight. Yeah, and we all know you cannot tell the police in their report one thing and then testify to something later in court. You know, he, well, well, I mean, you can, but you can, but it's, it, it's it goes credible, against, it makes right. you uncredible and think about this. So here for a second. So he's probably a bit of a bit ashamed that he was just afraid and decided not to go over to the wall. Right. And no, no one knows how they're going to act in that situation until they're in that actual situation. Well, this is where. Dovey Roundtree, the defense attorney, would make her first strike against the prosecution in their story. Okay, so she's immediately pointing out that regardless of how long it took police to arrive, and most people estimate that it was between four to six minutes after Mary Pinchot Meyer was shot. So very quick police response time here, right? Mm -hmm. She's stating that, let's be clear, there was nobody monitoring the crime scene before the police arrive, you know, there, there wasn't this bill branch watching over the crime scene. Anything could have been going on down there with, without any eyewitnesses. Now, what is the prosecution's general plan? Wait, just to stick with what he, you know, the change of story. Yes. Maybe, um, you know, maybe you feel 
inferior as a man, I guess, because you took off running and, and hid in your car. But also, what are the cops telling you to say? Right? Exactly. I mean, they, I mean the cops are going to be working with the prosecution to get a conviction, and you got a guy at the scene, you know, and he's a black man. So, you know, case closed. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, and what's the prosecution story? The prosecution story is this. Okay. That Mary Pinchot Meyer was attacked. Um, her, their first thought was that they would point out that she was, um, maybe being robbed, that somebody would try to rob her and that mm-hmm. that had gone wrong. But quickly into this, they were able to point out that she would not be one that you would suspect of being robbed because she didn't, she didn't carry a wallet. Now I know that an assailant might not know that. Uh, But she doesn't have a purse with her and she's not wearing any jewelry. So why are you robbing this woman? Now, they would later say that it was probably a the result. Her death was a result of a sexual assault attempt on rape on Mary, who ended up putting up too much of a fight that Ray Crump Jr. shot her because of this fight, because it got out of hand and that she might be able to identify him. Right. And that he fled the area. Now, why is Ray Crump? guilty of this crime well it's obvious to the people of the jury right this is the prosecution speaking because the police responded so quickly and there are steps and there are things that you need to you know there are exits and entrances natural exits and entrances to this towpath road and to this area and the police were able to block off all four of those within four minutes of the attack so one would think that the attacker was most likely trapped in that area and therefore would be apprehended by the police looking for him a short while later, which right. Ray Crump Jr. in right. fact Just was. like Ray was, yeah. So let's think about their attack, their their plan, the prosecution's plan for a second, okay? And let's t- bring in the next witness. The next okay. witness was police officer John Warner. He apprehended Ray Crump Jr. at 1.15 p.m. He was talking to... Ray Crump for about 10 minutes before he decided to arrest him. Now, this took place about one-tenth of a mile east of the murder scene. Now, when he does testify, when he came across Crump, Crump was not running. He did not look like he was fleeing the area. He was just walking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when he, when he approached Crump, he asked him for identification. He presented himself as a police officer. Crump did not seem to be startled other than the fact that he was soaking wet. Right. And he quickly tells him, I'm Ray Crump Jr. And he shows him identification. He's asked why he's there. Well, I, I'm I'm here because I was fishing. Well, why are you wet? Because just like the captain mm-hmm. said, the fishing pole fell into the water. He went after it. Well, that story doesn't make a whole lot of sense because Warner, Officer Warner, offers to go with Crump to the area to help him retrieve his fishing gear. Right. Crump says, well, it's it's in the water. We're not going to be able to retrieve it. Then he changes his story. Crump says, well, I was I was actually drinking and fishing and have fallen asleep. And, and when some point I stumbled into the water. Mm-hmm. Now, keep in mind, we said that Ray Crump Jr. is I mean, soaking wet. S- right. Does he smell of alcohol? I mean, is there any like stench to him? Warner didn't seem to... Uh, he didn't seem to elaborate on that at all. I mean, how drunk do you have to be to fall into the river? I don't know how drunk. It, well, I think you have to be pretty drunk, but I think his story is that he was drinking. Have you ever, wait, have you ever fell into a river? 
Uh, not a river, mm. but I have a pond. You f- f- why you're drinking? You fell uh, into a actually pond. similar story to Ray Crump Jr.'s. I was drinking. <laughs> I was drinking and fell asleep near the pond, and then uh, got attacked by some of my friends and and woke up startled and fell into the pond. <laughs> Those are some nice friends. <laughs> they're 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 no longer friends. They're, they, <laughs> but okay, so, sorry. sorry about that. Crump Jr. says that he he had fallen asleep, fell into the water. Okay. Now, when he's found by Officer Warner, he's not wearing a cap, and he's not wearing a jacket. So shortly after he's apprehended, the police start looking for a jacket and they start looking for the, the, the hat because right, the, the, the eyewitness saw they need to uh, find the guy that was described to them as described to them. Mm-hmm. And the next witness is, well, let's uh, take a quick pause, get, grab a beer, take a quick beer break. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. 
I love recommending IXL Learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners, get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. And we're back from the beer break. Yeah, Captain, I want to talk about real quickly the description that is given of the suspected assailant in Mary Pinchot's murder, because this will come up time and time again throughout the trial. Okay, so the description that is given by the first, what is, quote unquote, the star witness, Henry Wiggins, is that he had seen a man that was approximately five foot to five foot. I'm sorry, five foot eight to five foot 10 inches tall, about 180 pounds, African-American and in his Mm forties. And we had already described the clothes that he saw the man wearing. Now, why is this important? Well, Ray Crump Jr. Yes, he vaguely fits this description, right? Right. I mean, he's an African-American man, but outside of that, uh, on his driver's license, he's listed as five foot three inches five foot three and a half inches, sorry, 130 pounds. And he's 25 years old. So he's quite a bit younger than the man in his forties. And he's quite a bit shorter and lighter than the man that was described. Right. Way way shorter. Exactly. Now he is wearing somewhat the same clothes. You know, when officer Warner 
confronts Ray Crump Jr. And when he apprehends him, he is wearing the dark trousers, the dark shoes that were described, Mm -hmm. but he does not have this light colored jacket on and he does not have a hat. Now, the police were very quickly able to find the jacket. Within minutes of them apprehending Ray Crump Jr., they go looking for this jacket. And this jacket's found about 45 minutes after they apprehend him. Now, they wouldn't find the hat until the following day. Throughout this time... Right, but one could assume that if if Ray um, was the murderer, that he disposed of these items. Correct. And Ray Crump, this is what he's, he looks like when he's apprehended. He is soaking wet. The officer notes that his fly is down. Uh, his pants pocket was torn. And the he had a cut on his right hand and a small cut above his eye. Now, this would be- lead the police to believe that this these were injuries sustained during the uh, attack on Mary Pinchot Meyer. Right, because she fought back. His, his excuse for these injuries are that he fell into the water and he he got hurt on the rocks. The next witness that is called by the prosecution, this is Joseph Ransonval. Sorry for the name there, Joseph. I probably butchered that. But who is he? He works for the National Park Service. And why is he there? He's there to discuss the layout of the towpath. And why is this important? Because, again, the prosecution said that they were able to, to block off all those entrances and exits, and they believed that whoever committed this murder would have been trapped and would have been apprehended very quickly, as was Ray Crump Jr. Now, so they're looking at this map. They put like this huge map on the wall right across from where all the jury members are sitting so they could see it while they're going through the descriptions here. Mm-hmm. Now, the, this Joseph that worked for the National Park Service, he's asked, you know, how many exits are on the towpath road on the towpath between key bridge and chain bridge. And he states that there are four and within four minutes that the police were called, they had blocked off all four of these, thus trapping the assailant inside. Mm-hmm. Now he points out these four exits as one, there are steps to water street at key bridge Two, there's an underpass at foundry branch three. There's an underpass at Fletcher's boathouse and four. There are more steps at the chain bridge. Now, Throughout the trial, they will interview several of the officers that were blocking off these exits. And two of the officers that were supposed to be blocking off the underpass at Fletcher's Boathouse, they state that after about five minutes, they got tired of blocking off their spot, right? Okay. So they, well, everybody wants to catch the killer, right? I, mm-hmm. I think that's why some people go into law enforcement. They, they want to be the hero. You know, and so after about five minutes, they get a little tired of waiting and blocking their spot. They decide that they are going to each take a a route that would lead them near the scene of the murder. So they're taking separate routes. Now, during the course of one of these routes, one of the officers, he sees a head peek out of the woods. Now, he doesn't go full charge right into the woods looking for this man because he believes that this is probably the murder suspect. Why? The only thing he could identify from seeing the head of this person was that it was a head of an African-American male. Now, he sees this person approximately 100, 150 feet away from him. Okay. He decides to wait there, and he's waiting for backup before he's going to go apprehend the, this man. Backup never comes. So after some time passes, 
they figure out that they're they're ne- never able to locate this man. Now, a key thing in the trial that will come out here is that this officer says that he saw this man approximately at 1.45 p.m. Well, this is where we're going to see the great attorney, Dovey Roundtree, make her second strike against the prosecution's theory. Mm -hmm. So on cross-examination of this man, of Joseph from the National Park Service, she's going through the map with him. Now, she did the legwork. She would go down to the towpath day after day after day and scour the scene to see what what was going on and what it looked like and walk the ground herself. I don't think the prosecution did this. I think that they got, they got caught without knowing what was going on here. Right. Yeah. Or they were cocky and assumed it's 1965. We got a black man, you know, we're going to, we're going to charge him. He's going to be found guilty. easily. I I think they may have thought it was going to be an easy win. Well, they didn't realize that they're going to be dealing with Dovey Roundtree. So she's going to make her second strike here. And what is this? Through cross-examination of this man, she points out that there is a fifth exit that Joseph didn't know about. Um, And this points out something here. Which is weird because he's the expert on this. Yeah, and I don't think he actually knew the area. I think he was just somebody that worked for the National uh, Park Service. Right, and they, and they just call him in. They call him in as an expert witness. Right, right, well, quote unquote. What the jury's able to figure out is this guy's not an expert witness. This is just a guy that, that works for the Parks Department, and he is observing a map that anybody could look at. Right. So there's a fifth exit, and the problem with this is, well, not only is there an exit that they didn't know about, but... It wasn't blocked by anybody. This wasn't right. this wasn't being blocked off by officers. So so, so we have uh, one officer that saw a different black uh, male. Well, and then we have another exit altogether that's not blocked. Yeah. So there's a couple problems here for the prosecution because the prosecution would come out and say that that black male that peeked his head out of the woods. Right. Well, that was Ray Crump Jr. That that happened. You know. We saw the officers saw him and he was apprehended later. Mm. Well, he must have been hiding behind a very small tree. But we got to look at eyewitness testimony, right? Mm. So this officer says that he saw the man approximately at 1.45 p.m. Well, Ray Crump Jr., it was already been. Right. He was already arrested. He was already arrested at 1.15 p.m. So it could not have been Ray Crump Jr. Right. Unless he got the time wrong. And the other thing through testimony of the, uh, the gentleman from the National Park Service that they are able to determine that Dovey Roundtree points out to the jury is that not only are there five exits and not four, but there are also plenty of areas where somebody, a person on foot could just leave without having used the steps or anything of that nature. Right. So she's picked apart the prosecution's theory pretty good right here. In my opinion, she's mm-hmm. pointed out that a, all the areas were not blocked off that whoever killed Mary Pincho Meyer could have got away. Right. Two, She's pointing out that they're not only, you know, they're the only person seen near the body was this African-American male that vaguely matches the description of Ray Crump Jr. But she's already established that he was clearly not the only African-American male that was down near the towpath that day, that day right. and at that time. Right. So this is going to start presenting a whole bunch of problems for the prosecution. Now, let's keep in mind, too that the police had searched for days and days looking for the murder weapon. Now, they did go into the water looking for this. The murder weapon was never found. They never located the gun that, that, that shot these thirty eight caliber bullets. 
Right. So you could one assume that it got lost in the water. Mm-hmm. If if Ray actually fell into the water or he disposed of the gun in the water, making it a lot harder to find. Or you could also assume that if if Ray is innocent, that the the real killer left the park with the gun. Exactly. And that's what she would point out to the jury. So now the prosecution, they're going to bring in their second star witness. This is Lieutenant Mitchell. Now, he is, this is where the prosecution really liked their their attack, okay? Their first eyewitness was a black man who was pointing out another black man. And so they thought that that would ring some truth, you know, that it's not just a bunch of white people accusing this African-American man of committing the crime. Now, this is where they thought they were going to hit the home run. And this is why they called Lieutenant Mitchell last, because this is a former military man. Right. Uh, he's, He's a white guy. And he's of some standing in, in the area. So they believe that, you know, this is somebody that the jury as well as the general public public would find truthful and trustworthy. So he says that he would go jogging often around that time, almost daily. Yeah. And on his jog, he passed what he identified as Mary Pincho Meyer. This would be shortly before she was attacked. He said that about 200 yards after he passed Mary Pincho Meyer, that he jogged past an African-American man wearing a light tan jacket, dark trousers, dark plaid cap with a brim, and the man was not carrying any fishing equipment. Uh, he also stated that he saw, you know, who else did you see that day? He says, well, I saw a young white couple, and I saw another jogger who was wearing Bermuda Bermuda shorts. Okay. Uh, neither, we need to point out something here. When they're looking for the killer, mm-hmm. okay, Mitchell comes to the police the day after, after they had already arrested Ray Crump Jr. And says, this is the man that I saw walking, you know, he's right near the victim. Now, these other people that he states that he passed on his jog that day, these people never come forward. They're never identified and they never come forward as eyewitnesses. Right. So he, we got to point out something and we'll come back to this later after the trial. But remind me about this Lieutenant Mitchell. Okay. Now, Lieutenant Mitchell would state that he gave the same description the day after, the day after Ray Crump Jr. was arrested, that was given by Wiggins. Now, on on trial... Yeah, but Wiggins, you know, his eyewitness account is a little off of what Ray actually looks like. Mm-hmm. And at trial, um, this Lieutenant Mitchell is going to be very vague about his description. You know, when he's asked to give the height and the weight of the man... He says that he looked to be about my size. Well, Lieutenant Mitchell was approximately five foot eight and about 175 to 180 pounds. This again, making him much bigger than Ray Crump Jr. However, he's never willing. He's pressed by Dovey Roundtree, but he never really fully admits that he believed the man to be um, exactly that size and weight. He just keeps saying someone about my size. Again, I'm going to go back to the description of of Ray Crump Jr. or what was given of the man seeing standing over the body. Right. Now, again, this is somebody you're, given, was, you're right. You're given the eyewitness account of the suspect. This is somebody that was described as an African American male, stocky, about 180 pounds, and between the heights of five foot eight inches and five foot ten inches, and in his 40s. Okay, so when Officer Warner 
arrested Ray Crump Jr. He was presented with identification. This would have shown him that he didn't, Ray Crump Jr. didn't fully match the description of the man that they were looking for. This presents a problem because there was no, there was no gray area about this. They had the testimony of 12 officers that were investigating the crime that day that all heard the description that went out over the radio of whom they were to be looking for. And 10 of them state that we were looking for an African-American man, stocky, five foot, eight inches in his forties. Two of the officers give a different description. They say we were looking for an African-American man, five foot, 10 inches, 180 pounds and in his forties. But what you can figure out there is that this is not the description of Ray Crump Jr. Right. His driver's license states that he's five foot three and a half inches, 130 pounds. Now, on the date that he was arrested, the police booking, they list him as five foot five and a half inches and 145 pounds. So he's slightly taller, slightly heavier than what his driver's license states. Now, what it does not state in the in the booking report was Ray Crump Jr. was known to have wore lifts that would make him look taller. Right. So, and, I mean, they could have measured him there and he had the lifts on, so he would be 5'5". You're exactly right. He was un, it was unclear at the time of the trial whether he was arrested wearing these lifts or not. So he could have been taller the day he was arrested. The other thing was when given his weight, 145 pounds. Wait, but he's arrested pounds, the day of, right? So he's arrested the day of, so we can assume he had the lifters on during the attack. No, we, which, we can assume that. But what I'm saying is it was brought up in trial and the police were unable to give a full report as to the shoes that he was wearing that day, if he was wearing right. the lifts or not. They, mm-hmm. they couldn't determine that. That was There was no record of that. They just took his height and marked it down and moved on. But they marked it down as 5'5". Five, five. So they marked him they're, down as five, they're either five. lying or he's wearing the lifts and he was actually 5'5". Five, five. Exactly. And the other thing is with given his weight... You know, I'm assuming that they're not lying. Is he heavier because he's wearing wet clothes? I mean, I know that wouldn't add that wouldn't add 15 pounds to you, but it might <laughs> well, add a little bit. Of you know, I think there's some things on your driver's license that, you know, it, they say as long as you're within 50 pounds or whatever, that you don't have to change your amount. So it, it might just be one of those scenes. He's 25 years old. Uh, maybe he's a little heavier. And, and he never changed that on his license. So we can all agree, though, that Dovey Roundtree poked quite a bit of holes in the prosecution's theory of what took place that day, right? She's feeling pretty good about her case. And she decides that she only calls three eyewitnesses. And those eyewitnesses are all people that are just going to testify toward the character of Ray Crump Jr. Mm-hmm. And the other thing here, though, is that all three of them, one of them being his wife, all three of them had known Ray Crump Jr., this is their testimony, for 15 years or more, and at no point had any of them ever known Ray Crump Jr. to own a gun or to even mention that he owns a gun. Right. So we have this guy that is considered not to be a gun owner, and we have the coroner saying that not only is this person ambidextrous, but he's probably skilled with a handgun. So we have a guy that might not have even owned a gun, let alone have any skill with one. Yeah... One, I don't think it, it's necessary that he's capable of using his left hand or his right hand. And also, skilled with a gun, able to hold a gun up to a body and pull a trigger. That's He's not sharp shooting here. Mm-hmm. right? He's shooting 
uh, somebody by basically holding the gun to him, boom, pull the trigger. And the other thing that Dovey Roundtree would point out to the jury was that the coroner specifically said that he believed that the assailant was able to overpower the victim. Mm-hmm. Now, she points out that keep in mind, you know, yeah, it, it would have been man versus woman. However, Ray Crump Jr. is shorter than the victim and weighs only a pound or two more than the victim. So easily overpowered. Ray Crump Jr. might have been able to do that, but it is it like overly believable. No, there's some questions there. Well, I mean, but she did put up a fight mm-hmm. now on the final day after she calls the character witnesses. She decides this. she's going into court with the assumption that she is going to call Ray Crump Jr. to the stand. And she believes hard and fast that this is what she's going to do because his story will further back up uh, what he was doing there that day. Mm-hmm. Now, what was her plan? He had told her a story that he had not told anybody else, that he was down there at the by the water drinking with a married woman and he being a married man that this was something that they had done more than one occasion, that they would go down there and they would drink together and have a a little little kiss face. Right. There's a lot of male whores in this story. (laughs) Um, However, this woman never came forward. She she did um, write a letter or she wrote uh, some kind of, uh, testimony that was given to Dovey Roundtree, but, but it was not in the state or name. No, because she was married. Right. Right. And, uh, this was not something that could be presented in court. Now, Dovey Roundtree on her way into court that day, she, you had to take an elevator to get up to the floor where they were holding court. Well, and also if he's with this married woman, if that's a true story, then the police's accusations that this was a sexual attack because it didn't make a lot of sense as far as a robbery goes. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So if he's down there uh, fornicating with a married woman, then why would he have a sexual assault on this other lady? Exactly. And on the final day of trial, Dovey Roundtree is going into the courthouse and she's going to have to take the elevator up to the floor that's holding trial that day. And the elevator operator throws her a little curveball. She says, you know, I just I just took the prosecution team up to the floor. Now, the whole time they were in the elevator, they were going on and on about how happy they were that Ray Crump Jr. was going to take the stand, and they could not wait to pick him apart. <laughs> they had had this all planned out. They were going to spend the whole afternoon know. picking right. apart his testimony. I don't know if that's the elevator operator's job. I don't know, but... Uh, <laughs> Have you ever been in, a, in an elevator where there's an actual operator? Yeah. That's pretty interesting. It's very old school. Um, but anyway, so she gets this tidbit from the elevator operator and she decides that, you know what, if they're, if these good old boys are so happy about picking apart his testimony, I'm not even going to bother calling him to the stand. Right. Why take the risk? If you feel like you're ahead, you have more to lose than gain. Mm-hmm. Um, long story short, captain Ray Crump jr. Is acquitted of the murder of Mary Pinchot Meyer. All right. So what is the aftermath of this though? It's an unsolved murder. It's an unsolved murder to this date. The murder took place in the 60 in 64. The trial was in 65. We, here we are all these years later with no answers. Now there have been plenty of people that have stated that while this should still be an open case, that technically if you do some digging, it is an open case. However, after the trial, it was never investigated anymore. They spent no more time on investigating this murder after the trial. Mm -hmm. Why? Because the police chief at the time 
believed that the prosecutor had botched the trial, that did not do a good job on the trial, and furthermore, believed that Ray Crump Jr. killed Mary Pinchot Meyer, and the only reason why he got out of it was because of, of racial stuff, that the jury was primarily African-American. There were eight African-American people on the jury of 12. And so you have a lot of people that point out, well, this can't be a conspiracy because Ray Crump Jr. did it. He just happened to get off because he had eight people uh, of that the are same African, race, of right? the same race that helped him get off. And furthermore, Dovey Roundtree, she was a, a minister at an all-black um, congregation. And they believed that it was kind of like like you had said to me earlier, Johnny Cochran, where she was able to talk in a way and present her story in a way, and that that some of the white police officers and law enforcement at the time believed that, you know, because of her church background and because of the way that she said things and would convey things to the jury, that those eight African-American jurors would have believed anything that she said. Well, right. The, the idea of the lawyers to tell a better story, which lawyer tells the better story. Um, but I mean, he has some things going against him and some things that went for him in this case. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very hard to know. Uh, I mean, I think that probably played a part. I mean, how many, um, African American males are getting a fair trial in 64, you know? not many. And this was taking place in the North. Right. You know, I, I don't, you know, I imagine that varies. Uh, I would imagine it would be less likely to get a fair trial in the South, but this was taking place in the North. There was, you know, unfortunately there's still racism today. Everybody knows that we can pretend that it's not going on, but there's racism today. Could you imagine <laughs> the racism? Can in you the imagine 60s? if somebody just walks through their life going, you know, I'm just going to pretend that this shit doesn't happen. I'm just, just going to say yeah. that we're not racist. No, uh, yeah, what's interesting here, though, is, you know, Mary Meyer is, you know, a woman ahead of her time and a lot of uh, facets of her life, right? Oh, yeah, very and, many. And and so it is, is Ray's lawyer. She's she's a woman ahead of her time. She's an African-American woman, mm-hmm. right? She's a she's also a preacher, mm-hmm. and, and she's a lawyer. I mean, in 65, and then not only that, but she takes, I mean— I wonder where her career went after this. She had a very successful career. I don't know if she went on to um, be a part of any other famous cases, but I believe she she had a uh, biography that came out sometime in the 90s. So that's why so much of this stuff is, uh, you know, able to be reported easily. You know, you have the trial transcripts, you have her biography, plus there were all these other biographies of people near Mary Pinchot Meyer that came out later in life. Yeah, because I mean, she was a society woman. She was surrounded by successful people. Well, and like we said, the the unsent love letter from JFK sold for almost ninety thousand mm-hmm. dollars. You know, this year. So, I mean, uh, anything that's connected with uh, John F. Kennedy has been very sought after in the public eye. Now, there were several people involved in this trial. One being the prosecutor, um, stating that. If you look at Ray Crump Jr.'s life after the trial, that that points out that, that he did this murder. Okay. Because uh, he would go on to have a very lengthy police record, uh, which involved um, things like arson uh, and assaults. I think he had two arsons on there. I think he burnt down his own house at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, Insurance fraud. And they would point out that. Hey, by the way, next week I'm burning down the garage. I think Ray Crump Jr. was arrested like 22 times after 
this uh, trial took place. Yeah, and yeah. and he had actually moved out of state too. So some of those weren't him being targeted by right, anybody. Right. Um, sorry about that. I just hit my head. Um, <laughs> but they would point out that he was in fact a violent man. Now in Dovey Roundtree's biography, mm-hmm. she states that she, she has a good litmus test for these type of things, right? She would interview a lot of people and have to determine whether they're guilty or innocent. So I, I'm going to go with her on this. And she states that she believes that that nine months in jail that, that Crump sat there waiting for his trial right. had changed him because she saw a man that w- had been attacked multiple times while he was in jail. Uh-huh. She believed he might even have been raped at one point. And she saw a very different man walk out of the trial doors that day than right. the man that walked into him at the start. And she thinks that that changed him. And obviously he had a, a drinking problem. He had a, had a small drinking problem before he went on trial before Mary Pinchot's murder. And she saw that his alcoholism became very acute afterwards. And, and this would lead to all these problems that he had with the law. Well, yeah, I mean, but you also have, you know, you're living in this world thinking that you're going to get a fair shake, and and I'm sure, um, I'm sure anybody of decent intelligence back in '63, '64, '65, this time period, uh, African American male knows that some of the some of society's cards are stacked against you already, mm-hmm. and so, but but with those cards being stacked against you. Other than that, you're hoping you get a fair shake, right? If you do the right thing, then then good things happen to you. And and but I mean, one whatever if if his story is true, um, and he was actually with a married woman, then you weren't doing the right thing at the time. And but then this happened, and then this kind of sets this spiral, and it changes your mindset. Well, this is how the world works, and it doesn't matter if I did it or not all these people think I'm guilty of it. That'd be a really tough thing to defend yourself on. Well, and you hinted on something there that I've always said for many, many years, you know, and in regards to Ray Crump Jr., he was not just a man in the wrong place at the wrong time. No, this was a man willingly putting himself in a bad situation. He went down there that day to do something he shouldn't be doing. And I've always said for years, if you put yourself in a bad situation or you put yourself around bad people enough Bad things are going to happen to you. I'm not saying he deserved what happened to him to th- that day if he was, in fact, innocent. However, you know, that's the moral of the story here. Now, you also hinted on something earlier that I, I appreciate because when when I first started looking at this case and the more I got to know about Mary Pinchot Meyer, the more I got to admire her. I, th- I think she was an incredible woman that has a bigger story that's that's more than just possibly having an affair with the late president. Yeah. I think that she was an extremely interesting woman. I think that she fit into high society very good, but she also had this inner hippie inside of her, which was cool. And the other thing, though, you pressed on was... Well, you can be a part of high society, but understand that the idea is that you have to have an open mind. Mm-hmm. And if you have an open mind about issues you're more likely to solve the problems. Right. And she fit into both of those categories. The other thing here too, is like you said about Dovey Roundtree. Yeah. This was an amazing woman. I mean, I could only imagine if, if, if she, she poked holes in this prosecution's theory, like you wouldn't believe, I mean, she just tore apart their case in my opinion. And I always looked at yeah, this. But I, I look, some of it is just, I think a shitty prosecution. I mean, for everything that, you know, 
for when they go, well, this eyewitness testimony is off. He's only 5'3". Well, if he's lift, wearing lifters, mm-hmm. then therefore their, their eyewitness testimony is not that far off. Right, but we both agree that the prosecution came into this trial and they thought they probably had an easy case. This is a, a, a poor or a, a lower middle class black man accused of killing a well-to-do white woman. Right. And it happened in broad daylight. This is an easy case. But Dovey Roundtree could have walked in the same with the same thought, right? She could have walked in and thought, well, this is an easy case for me to lose. This is an African-American male right. charged right. with killing a white woman. And I'm just going to go in here and make sure that he gets a fair shake. I'm not going to really work this thing real hard. I think she worked this case really hard. Well, but in all fairness, she took the case. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you're not going to take a case to lay down. She took a case to win it. No, you're, and you're exactly right. But I think when she saw what was, uh, you know, the adversity in front of her, I think that she didn't back down and she never wavered and that she continued on and she got the, I think it's the right verdict. Now, I can't say from personal opinion, whether I think Ray Crump Jr. is guilty or innocent, because I think there are things pointing to his guilt and things pointing to his innocence. However, had I been on the jury back in 1965 and witnessed the trial as I understand it to be, I would have given uh, a verdict of innocent there. Right, right. I, I believe I would have too. Um, but I don't know. I, I, you know, when I, when I, cause I put this one on the list, uh, I don't, put a lot of cases on the, on our, our schedule. Um, and I did so because I'm so fascinated with the assassination of John F. Kennedy and when this is always reported. So I guess we can get into the, uh, conspiracy side of things for just a little bit. Right. Well, I was going to ask you, do we have enough time to discuss, uh, any of the conspiracies? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's early in the day. I got a little bit of time for you. Yeah. So, well, I mean, here's the thing is I, I wanted there to be a conspiracy. I wanted there to be this bigger thing, this bigger reason. Um, Regarding Mary Pinchot's murder, not JFK's, right? Right, right. But look, I will just come out and say it. I I do not think uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone gunman. Well, before you get into that, let's talk about Mary. Okay. No, no, but this is setting it up. You got to start there. So what was happening before JFK you know, yeah, there's this affair and all this stuff. Great. Who cares? In my eyes, I don't care. You know, he was a whore. That doesn't, I think he was a good president. But, so Mary has ties with Timothy Leary, Mm -hmm. which is the big LSD guy. And he was a professor at Harvard doing studies on LSD, you know, the truth serum. But it's really more about expanding and opening the mind. That truth serum was a joke. Well, no, but people actually used it as truth serum. In experiments, I think. Right, right. So she had, uh, basically she had a relationship with Timothy Leary and she was getting LSD from Timothy Leary and she was administering these turn-on events with, um, you know, Washington elites. Mm -hmm. And she was trying to get uh, the wives of these elites to get turned on, to open their minds, therefore influencing their men. And she even stated to Timothy Leary multiple times, if you can get these guys' wives and these guys' mistresses to get turned on and open up to new ideas that it could really influence the the whole world. Um, 
And if you ever want to look up something pretty interesting, it's uh, Timothy Leary wrote about this and his relationship with um, Mary Meyer. No, not a sexual relationship, just a relationship. So they would go back and forth. When John F. Kennedy was assassinated, she called Timothy Leary. She then stated to him, they killed him because he knew too much. Yeah, I believe his exact quote is that uh, she said, they couldn't control him anymore. He was changing too fast. They've covered everything up. Right. And really, to me, a, a tell sign of, there's some big tells, I think, that point to the idea that it was this uh, a coup d'etat, if you want to call it, is this notion that Kennedy was going to pull out of the war. And how, who does that affect monetarily? And that the government didn't want to do that. So therefore we're going to assassinate him and we're going to take back power. He wasn't going to listen to the people because he got turned on, you know, as far as, you know, opened up his mind to the possibility of, Hey, war might not be the answer. Okay. So yeah, maybe he knows too much. Maybe he's changing. Maybe he, they can't control him anymore. So they assassinate him. That's what she's kind of saying towards Timothy Leary. And I think she was a little scared, you know, because she was one of the associates that were kind of helping him open up his mind. And so that happens. That happens in 63. Now, when you hear about Mary Meyer all the time, you hear, okay, the assassination happened. And then Mary knew so much that they killed her. But that's not the truth. Because what happened was it was a year later. Yeah, she was killed about 11 months after uh, JFK was assassinated. Yeah, and you have the Warren Commission come out with their report. Just weeks before she's killed. And this, to me, uh, is if you want to go down the conspiracy rabbit hole with this case, this would be the tell sign. Because the Warren Commission come out with their reports, their findings. Um, Lee Harvey Oswald is the lone gunman. And she is pretty vocal and pretty public that she does not agree with their findings. Well, one rumor that was going around as well was that she had actually purchased the paperback version of the Warren commission's report and that she was making notations as she was reading it and highlighting things and probably putting together a case that they were wrong, that their findings were not exact. Um, the cool thing about Mary Pincho Meyer, though, again, she was a society woman. So the people that surround her were very successful. So there's so many document. If you want to dive into this thing, there's so many biographies that came out years after she was killed mm -hmm. of people close to her that talk about things going on in her life that led up to her death. Now, some of these can be considered hearsay, um, but, you know, you have like her brother-in-law, uh, Mr. Bradley, he was a very successful guy. He was in charge of the Washington Post, I believe, later in his life. Right. And, um, you know, he has a biography and, as well as plenty of other people in this case. Now, let's talk about real quick why, you know, you're talking about Mary Pinchot Meyer. Was it a conspiracy? But let's pretend we all agree. Ray Crump Jr. We believe the jury. We believe Dovey Roundtree. And he is actually innocent of this crime. Mm -hmm. So where are some problems with who actually killed Mary Pincho Meyer and, and why? And you had mentioned her not agreeing with the Warren report. Right. Okay. And the argument there is that, okay, as far as the assassination is concerned, 
how many of those witnesses have mysterious deaths afterwards? And so that's kind of where they're drawing is anybody that's connected, anybody that has uh, different viewpoints, anybody that has a voice, anybody that can, can that could change public opinion. There's a lot of people that end up dead, and then that's they're they're lumping it, her in with that. Yeah, I believe there were like 25 to 30 people on that list, and she would have been like 15th or 16th on the list. Now, not all of them were murders. Some of them were suicides. but uh, Right, there was a lot of mysterious It's enough deaths. to talk about, that's for sure. Well, the other weird thing, too, is that there was, a, I think, a break-in to her house. Um, they were looking for her diary, and there was this whole thing that after her death, um, trying to... Uh, that people of higher power was trying to get her diary. Yeah. She had told some of her friends and I believe it was her, uh, uh, sister that she believed that people were following her and that she, that they were breaking into her home and possibly wiretapping her phone. Um, she even states that one time when she was coming home, that she saw somebody leaving her, her home. Right. And, um, And and if a lady's making these claims, I don't think she's, you know, paranoid and just making this stuff up. Well, let's talk about this diary real quick because there are a whole bunch of stories about this diary. I wanted to include it and give a very factual opinion of this diary. The problem was when I looked at it through the eyes of four different people reporting on this diary, they all had different stories. Uh And so I couldn't come up with what was the truth, but the general story is this. That within 24 hours of her murder, that her friends and her loved ones conspired that they wanted to go to her home and to her studio and they wanted to collect her personal things. That being a diary that they suspected she kept, Mm -hmm. her letters and her personal papers. Now, when they went to this is Ben Bradley. He's the and part of this could be like I like I said, she's. I mean, she's this. This is a tough cookie. I mean, you know, she, she was having an affair with the president, you know, at one point, and and she talked to you know, like I said, she talked to uh, to Timothy Leary about the different mistresses of people of power in Washington. Maybe she was having other affairs. Maybe it was just to get this diary to protect her reputation because you know, a lady that is single. And maybe having uh, affairs with married men uh, puts a, a damper, puts a kind of black cloud over all the positive stuff she was doing, especially during that time period. And so there, there's definitely motive in, in that scenario to we want to collect this stuff uh, so so we can kind of protect her name and her reputation. Well, they're saving face, right? They're right. they're protecting her name, protecting her family because they believe she was writing down everything she did and and potentially protecting the Kennedy name as well. Mm-hmm. They didn't want these things to get out. Now, her brother-in-law Ben Bradley, his story, he says that he was part of this group that went to her home to get these items. Now, when there, he says when he gets there, there's a gentleman, his name is James Angleton. He's a CIA agent and he is, he was either trying to pick the lock to her home or he was already in the home when they got there. That part of the story is a little unclear. Mm -hmm. While they were there, they found a diary. And according to Bradley, 
Angleton said, you know how we handle these things in the CIA. I can take this back to headquarters and I'll burn it. I'll dispose of it properly and nobody will ever know what was in this diary. Well, after the the group of friends talk about it, they decide that that's probably the best thing to do. And, and why is this normal, though? Is it just normal because she was married to a CIA agent? I think so. And I think it's where they live. I mean, living in the D.C. area, being involved in all of those groups. Right, but if it was just some other white woman, even of some power, would the CIA be there going through her diary? Um, you know, it's unclear why, why Angleton was there. But he is a man of the CIA. He could have said, I'm investigating this, her murder. You know, this is within 24 hours of the death. You know, so there, there's not been somebody convicted of this crime. They could have fallen for that. Well, they, they didn't do a good job of, you know, investigating but, and convicting anybody. No, but you need to keep in mind something here, too. They were friends with James Angleton. So it wasn't like a stranger show, right, okay, showed up okay. and was trying to break into the well, home. I wanted to see where the, how does this make logical no, this sense? Was a, this was a man that they okay. knew, and they knew that Cord Meyer had known him. And so this was a man that they, they trusted. Now, where the problem comes about is there's multiple, again, multiple stories with, the, with this diary. The one being that seems to be the most likely that several people back up is that they agreed to give the diary to James Angleton, and he said he was going to burn it at the CIA at, at his office. Right, right. After he read it slowly. Now, um, some other stories about the diary. Uh, one of them being that one of the friends, a female friend of hers, states that she took the diary and took it home and disposed of it. Um, another person states that they saw James Angleton in possession of this same diary 10 to 15 years later after he said that he had destroyed it. Why was he holding on to it? Uh, and there's also some other reports that state that they found a diary that seemed to contain no information about her personal life at all regarding mm -hmm. Kennedy or drugs or anything of that nature, and that they gr agreed that it was of nothing of importance and they decided to dispose of it. However, there are people that will point out that there, some of these stories say that the diary was found in her home. And other stories say that the di diary was found in her studio. Mm -hmm. So some have suspected that maybe one of these diaries was a fake, that, that somebody had either planted it or it was just something that was misunderstood to be a diary and wasn't, in fact, that. Or maybe there's two. I mean, maybe there's just a right. diet. You know, some people like to keep journal. It's good for mental, you know, mental health. You know, get out of the journal, just kind of jot down your thoughts of your day, how you're feeling. You know, just kind of check in. You know, well, type one journal. Of, one of and then then another journal or another diary that is more in depth about certain events and certain things. More kind of a keeping track of history. And you're exactly right because one of her friends would state that. What they were looking for was a journal, uh, a diary, uh, with personal information, with with maybe even potentially top secret information. However, what they had found was more of a sketchbook, of was more of something that you would expect to find in an artist studio or an artist home, where it was just yeah, kind of yeah. doodles and and things yeah, of and that, like little ideas. Mm -hmm. Why else could this be a conspiracy, Captain? Well, let's go back to that Lieutenant Mitchell. Now, he's the, the man that came forward the day after Ray Crump Jr. was arrested. Yeah, he's the jogger. He's that, the jogger. That claims he jogged by Ray. And he testifies at trial. Now, on the date 
that he goes into the police department and says, Hey, I was there yesterday and I saw her and I saw him. Uh-huh. He states that his job is he's a Lieutenant with the army. Okay. When they go to trial, he gives a different description of his occupation. He never states that he's with the army. He states that he's a teacher at Georgetown. I believe mathematics was what he was teaching. Okay. Now, there have been several authors that have written about this case. Now, more than one of them have gone back and done the detective work. Done. Done. <laughs> Did I say dung? <laughs> Who knows? That's funny. Well, Lieutenant Mitchell's story might be a pile of dung okay. because the authors have gone back and more than one have concluded when they contacted the University of Georgetown that he's never been listed as a, as a professor or teacher there ever, right, 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 ever, right. including 1965 when he was at trial stating that that was his occupation. Hmm. Very interesting. Well, then who the hell is this Lieutenant Mitchell? Well, the other. <laughs> and second of all. Again, remember, we pointed out that in the trial, he's the only one saying that he was there. You know, Ray Crump Jr. never says he saw this Lieutenant Mitchell jogging. Right. Mary Pincho Meyer is dead. The white couple never comes forward. They're never identified. They could be not even exist. And the man wearing the or, or Bermuda could, shorts. Or they could be people having an affair that don't want to come forward. <laughs> yeah. But what about the man with the Bermuda shorts all by himself? He's never yeah. identified or, or seen by anybody else and never comes forward saying that he was down there that day and had seen have, anything. Yeah, so we have the one case with the jorts, and now we have the Bermuda Bermuda, Bermuda shorts. shorts. Yeah. We should write songs about this. Uh, the other thing, too, is, you know, the Babushka lady? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I think I've that's seen the picture of her. The picture, basically, if you look up the JFK assassination, there is this lady that they call the Babushka lady. Mm-hmm. My tongue is getting in the way of my talking today. So this lady has never been identified, I believe. And a lot of people believe that Mary Meyer was the Babushka lady. And the Babushka lady was in Dallas, Texas on the day that uh, JFK was killed. Is that correct? Right. Now, one could just, you know, if they're having an affair and we have a letter that was unsent, JFK saying, hey, come visit me here. Come visit me there. Was she just in the audience of the parade visiting her you know, lover, right? Lover. Um, was she the Babushka lady? Eh, it's interesting. What's interesting to me, though, is the Babushka lady has very distinct glasses. And if you look up Mary Meyer, Babushka lady, you can see pictures side by side. I'll post that on Instagram uh, at True Crime Garage. That's also on the website, too, at truecrimegarage.com. We did get a bunch of emails of people asking us. They're like, well, I know this case is interesting, but I really want to hear uh, you guys go through the JFK assassination. And I thought, oh, my goodness, because, I mean, West Memphis 3, I flinched a few times when we decided to do that case because it was huge. OJ was a big case. I mean, Which JFK, we, we kind of rushed West Memphis 3 a little bit. We could have made that like part six you know six parts yeah because we, when we got into it we thought that three would would more than cover it and we got into it and we realized holy <sighs> moly yeah. and we kind of had to rush through some stuff in but can i give you a couple quick bullet points on my thoughts of jfk and his assassination do we have time for that i guess oh god you're like opening up this can of war- worms you know no i just have some questions okay here's the questions that I have when I, when I think about the assassination and whether Oswald did it or whether there were other people involved or Oswald was not even involved. 
you know, there, there's some things that are very questionable. Now we need to keep in mind, you had mentioned going, you know, pulling out of the war at the time, but there was also some things going on within our government that, that is of the same mind. Now, keep in mind, we were a war economy back then. That was what drove our economy. So yes, the government would most likely want us to stay at war, but what was going on as well is we had the cold war with the Russians going on at the same time. Now, the weird thing here is that the the military and the CIA was not working hand in hand with President Kennedy at the time. President Kennedy was making deals and working on making treaties with the Russians to 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 end the testing of nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. And this is not something that the military wanted to do. In fact, when we had the uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. The military and the CIA wanted to use this to their advantage to basically start World War III. They wanted to use it as an excuse to launch nuclear missiles towards Russia, and they wanted it to they wanted to use this to invade Cuba as mm-hmm. well. And now Kennedy, I know that we've attacked his personal life quite a bit, but we we should. We I just sh- called him a whore. Yeah, but we should stand up for him in the fact of being a good president that he was seeming to make moves towards peace. And he was doing efforts to make moves towards peace. He didn't agree with firing the nuclear weapons at, at Russia. He did not agree with going in and trying to evade, invade Cuba. Uh, so he was doing things that they didn't agree with. This, and it's weird when you see the military and the president not working together, in my opinion. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's the, you know, shows motivation of why they would want a coup d'etat. And there's another person you should look up, and this is Tony Scheiman, and uh, her father was Joe Scheiman. Now, it's hard to figure out exactly what his job was. I believe that he had worked for the Secret Service, but there's many people that bring him up and say that, you know, if you follow him, this Joe Scheiman enough, that he seems to work in whatever branch of the military or whatever branch for our government that is uh, convenient at the time. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes he's listed as having been in the Air Force. Sometimes he's listed as being FBI man or mm-hmm. CIA or Secret Service. Now, so he's kind of a guy that seems to move around and be a little shifty. But one thing she said about her father that, that she has said time and time again that, that always stands out in my mind was that she, she said that six months before Kennedy was assassinated, that her father had told her that Lyndon Johnson had come to him and asked for more security. And this would be more security than the president was receiving. And he just kind of wanted to mention that to his daughter at the time because he found it to be a very strange request. He also thought it to be a very uh, foreshadowing request. Mm. Yeah, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty. I guess. I don't know. I don't want to get into it too much because I hope that we cover it sometime. And actually, like, actually dive into it. Maybe next November. Yeah, yeah. That's a <laughs> we're we're setting up a giant task. No. Anyways, is it, was she a part of? It? Was her murder a conspiracy? Um, I don't know, and I wouldn't put it past uh, anybody. To me, there is no like, you know, direct red flag. Of all, oh, this is a conspiracy. I think that she has ties to Timothy Leary that are interesting. She has obviously ties to the CIA that are interesting with her ex-husband. She has ties to JFK being one, his neighbor, being his friend, being somebody that, you know, look, I keep saying possibly had an affair because other than people going, yeah, we think that happened. There's not much proof. And, you know, I don't think 
I think it's irresponsible just to say, oh, yeah, yeah, she was definitely you're, having You're right. Letter. It's not 100% proof positive. But well, it and seems what they to be claim the- is this unsent letter is the proof. Well, it's unsent. It would be different if it was sent. Um, but it, like I said, it's again, it's a shitty love letter. It's a booty call letter is what it is. But, but there, there does seem to be more people inside that circle saying that there was an affair between the two than, than are saying there was not. Yeah, but that what I'm saying is you have all these things tying that really kind of seem like, oh, yes, definitely there's some conspiracy. And normally I'm so quick to jump on the conspiracy bandwagon. This one, there's just nothing that hooks me to go, this is definitively something weird going on. This is just a lot of kind of circles that she run in. Um, the circles that she ran with, it's, it's odd. So, but I think anybody that ran in those circles would think possibly this could be a conspiracy. Well, and I think if you want to, uh, I, I mean, this Lieutenant William Mitchell is a big red flag for me. He, there seems to be a lot of problems with the things he said. There's a lot of problems with his career. Now, there's even one author that has said that he believes that Mitchell was the one that, that in fact murdered Mary Pinchot Meyer. And he's worked to build a case against him all these years later. And this has been taking place within the past few years. Will it ever become a a trial? Will he ever be brought up on those charges? Mm -hmm. Probably not. This man is in his 70s by now. And and he's led a very shadowy, uh, mysterious life. Mm -hmm. Um, Was was he simply just not there that day is what I wonder. Was he just coming forward and, and regurgitating what he heard in the read in the newspaper and and he's backing up this story so that they have a fall guy, right? Or what? Or was he paid, you know, to come forward? Or was he paid to hire a hit on her? And then they thought there was a possibility that maybe he was seen, so they wanted him to come. Who who knows? There's a bunch of what ifs. The sad thing is that you know Mary Meyer was a you know a very smart, intelligent, creative woman. She was a mother. Um, you know she overcame a lot of adversities in her life. She seemed to be such a a very positive person, a positive influence on other people in her life. And she lost her life for whatever reason. And that's the point. And that's, and that's the sad thing. The other sad thing to me, the other thing, the upsetting thing about this to me is that the day that that trial started in 1965 against Ray Crump Jr. for the murder of Mary Pinchot Meyer, the investigation stopped. And even when he was acquitted and he walked out of that courtroom, a free man, they never, they didn't investigate this crime anymore. They just let it be. They just walked away from it and said, you know what? We got a bad verdict and this guy's absolutely guilty. And that's wrong. That's wrong. This should be, it's, I'm sure it's considered legally an open case, but not in the opinion of the investigators back then. And I'm sure not nowadays. Well, I mean, you see this, I mean, even with like the West Memphis three, when you give the, you know, you give them a plea deal, they get out of jail, and then they go, well, no, these guys are still guilty. We still believe they're guilty. Well, if you still believe they're guilty, then why are you letting them out on the street? If you still believe those guys murdered eight-year-old children, why are you letting them out on the street? You're stating that so you don't have to do the work. Yeah, and and, and it's you can't it's, have it both ways. Well, it's it's very sad because it, he, again. Not only do you have the victim, but you have the victim's family that has no answers. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode.
I got a little recommended reading for you, Captain. Yeah, I mean, that's what we're getting to. Well, thank you. Uh, this week's recommended reading, uh, The Mammoth, sorry, The Mammoth, The Mammoth Book of Cover-Ups. This is by John E. Lewis. The 100 Most Disturbing Conspiracies of All Time. I recommend picking this up. This is kind of like the Guinness Book of Conspiracies, if you will. Hmm. Uh, this is covering cases like the assassination of JFK, things like the Da Vinci Code, Area 51, the death of Princess Diana, and the Illuminati. You like to talk about the Illuminati. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, many, many more. There's the 100 Most Disturbing Cases and Conspiracies of All Time, the Mammoth Book of cover-ups by John E. Lewis. Go to our website, truecrimegarage.com. Click on the recommended page. That's on there as well as the book that we recommended last week, Mary's Mosaic. And like always, you can follow us at truecrimegarage.com. Go to the website, sign up on the mailing list. Make sure you subscribe to the show. Make sure you tell a friend. And also social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all that stuff at True Crime Garage. And until next week, be good, be kind, and don't litter. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.